Growth Igniters Radio with Pam Harper and Scott Harper, episode 69, The Myths of Creativity Under New Management. This episode is brought to you by Business Advancement Incorporated, enabling successful leaders and companies to accelerate to their next level of success on the web at businessadvance.com. And now, here's Pam and Scott. Thanks, Chris. I'm Pam Harper, founding partner and CEO of Business Advancement Incorporated. And right across from me, as always, is my business partner and husband, Scott Harper. Hi, Scott. Hi, Pam. And it's great to be here. It's always exciting to join you for another episode of Growth Igniters Radio. And as you know, our purpose is to spark new insights, inspiration, and immediately useful ideas for visionary leaders like you and your company to dramatically increase momentum for game-changing results. So Pam, what are we taking on today? Myths surrounding creativity, especially as it pertains to management practices. Okay. You know, as our companies grow, one of the paradoxes we face is that the environment that supports us with more employees and more resources also constrains us with new management challenges. Yeah, that's that's true. And, you know, in spite of that, it's so easy to rely on tried and true best practices, especially in management. After all, you know, we develop them over the years from what we've learned over time, what we're taught. And they become our habits. That's right. However, to be the disruptor and not the disrupted, as we hear people saying they want to be, we need to be open to continuously questioning these habits and developing new management practices that are in sync with today's reality. And that's why we're pleased to have David Berkus as our guest today. He's an educator, speaker, and author of two books, The Myths of Creativity and his new book, Under New Management. David writes regularly for Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Psychology Today, and 99U. He's also written articles for Fast Company, Bloomberg Business Week, and an assortment of other publications. In addition, he's the founder and host of Radio Free Leader, a podcast that shares insights on leadership, innovation, and strategy. He's delivered keynote speeches and workshops for a variety of audiences, such as Fortune 500 companies, TEDx events, and governmental leaders and future leaders at the U.S. Naval Academy and Naval Postgraduate School. And he tells us that when he's not speaking or waiting in airport lounges, (laughs) he's also Associate Professor of Management at Oral Roberts University, teaching in areas of organizational behavior, creativity and innovation, and strategic leadership. David, welcome to Growth igniters radio oh thank you both so much for having me you um i mean you you pretty much covered it in the intro i don't i don't know what i'm gonna supply here but thank you well that's all the time that's right uh actually there's a lot to talk about and one of the things that we were particularly interested in is that you have these two books we've never really talked about two books at once but they kind of go hand in hand to me at least the myths of creativity and also under new management what prompted you to write these books? To me, they're cousins. Yeah, well, I definitely see them as that. I mean, there's a sort of through line throughout everything that I do in, in trying to bring 
um, evidence-based, empirical, research-based insights into the practitioner realm. And it just so happens that I tend to favor the ones that are a little bit counterintuitive, right? Mm -hmm. that, that go kind of a little bit against the grain. And so, you know, Miss of Creativity, actually, I set out not to write a creativity book. It was actually supposed to be a leadership book about what it takes to lead creative organizations and innovative organizations. And what I found was that there was this whole series of misconceptions that needed to be addressed first. And then if you could kind of strip away that, it, at that point, it really looked like the same practices that work for a lot of leadership work. It's the stories that the leaders are telling and the stories that leaders are letting people say about themselves that are really uh -huh. blocking a lot of people's potential. So so that was missive creativity. And then along the way, you started to notice that the companies that I was interviewing and profiling in the book, they did things a little bit differently. So that created the rabbit trail that turned into under new management. Why are these really successful, really innovative companies doing things different than best practices, as you talked about in the intro? And, and why is that and why is it working? And my background is as an organizational psychologist, so it was kind of, it was a different perspective on it. I could see quite clearly why all these ideas are working. And it wasn't just because they were new and crazy. It was because there's real psychological science behind why these are better for the type of work that we're asking employees to do now. Well, we all know that we all have to be creative. We all have to be innovative. But there's still a lot of myths around creativity especially how it can be applied and innovation can be applied in companies. Why do you think that is? Well, I think, so So two reasons. I think it actually gets propagated from both sides. The people who regularly do creative work and the people who sort of don't want to, are afraid to, et cetera. To, to the people that don't see themselves as creative. You know, if you're that type of person that every drawing you've ever done past your adolescence was a stick figure drawing type of thing and you say, I'm just not very creative. I think a lot of times we let these myths and these misconceptions um, propagate because they give us an out. They give us an excuse. You know, if, mm. if everybody, and this is what the research says, if everybody has some level of creative ability and they just need to be better at practicing it, then you're not off the hook, right? You have no excuse for not trying to be, to bring your creative side to work, for not trying to help your organization innovate. Okay. In the same token, I think a lot of people in the sort of quote unquote creative industries, the ones that we normally associate with being prolifically creative, uh, a lot of times I think there's this idea that if you were sort of, you know, blessed by the gods, not that a lot of people still believe in the, the divine muses of ancient <laughs> Greece and that sort of thing, but if you can keep that up, that there's something special and unique about you and it, it has nothing to do with effort, it came from some sort of luck of the gene pool, well then you're sort of, ha you're cornering the market, like you're creating a monopoly out of this sort of misconception. Yeah. But actually, I mean, I think, I think you do yourself a disservice. To the person that actually would say they're very creative, it actually does them a service in the long term because it kind of caps the appreciation we can have for the effort that they put into it. So in both cases, I think there are reasons why we want these misconceptions to, to stay. But in both cases, I think they help what society and what organizations need to be innovative. Hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. Yeah. Ah. I like that. Yes, yes. Well, so if you take that whole thinking around creativity, it's interesting because we do get caught in our habits of thought, especially with regard to management. At least that's what we've seen. What do you think is the biggest myth of creativity related to management practices? So, I mean, I think a, a, one of the biggest ones is that idea. I call it the breed myth and the myth of creativity. And we don't normally say that, you know, because somebody has a certain genetic code or a certain sort of uh, mix of things when they were born that makes them creative or not. But we do suffer the myth in organizations of saying that certain roles lend themselves to creativity and other ones aren't. You know, I a lot of times when I give speeches, I make a joke about how uh, every every single department and every single role can benefit the organization by bringing its creative side to work, except right. accounting, 
right? And that's, <laughs> that's, that's the joke. But I mean, the, tr- uh-huh. the truth is that like double entry bookkeeping from the Middle Ages, I mean, that was a huge innovation, right? So even yeah. that area can kind of benefit from that. And that's, we, we don't tend to do that. You know, we see the marketing side as creative. A lot of times we see strategy as a creative process. We don't see mm-hmm. finance and accounting as Well, you don't want to say things. creative accounting, do you? Well, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Very true, right? <laughs> right, but, right. but if the truth is that every, so, we, so instead yeah, manufacturing. of- Manufacturing. Yeah. Yeah. Right, exactly. And I mean, manufacturing, if, if you go into sort of agile and you go into um, a lot of the work of TQM before mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm, right. there's a lot of innovations that came through manufacturing. And, right. and we sort of need to recognize that, that creativity is everybody's business. So we don't we don't say it's certain breeds, but we do tend to say in organizations that we're trying to manage that only certain departments and only certain roles are responsible for it. And that's just, that's a really limiting belief uh, to for most organizations. That's true. What's especially interesting in your new book is that you actually talk about management practices regardless of department and some of the things that we would never even question. That's something that we're going to talk about in our next segment. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll speak more with David Burkus, author of The Myths of Creativity and also under new management about the myths of three best management practices and how to bust them. Stay with us. You're listening to Growth Igniters Radio with Pam Harper and Scott Harper, brought to you by Business Advancement Incorporated, on the web at businessadvance.com. We enable visionary leaders and their companies to dramatically accelerate to their next level of growth and success. And just a reminder, check out our show notes at growthignitersradio.com, episode 69 for today's episode. You can download resources for the conversation today, including links to previous Growth Igniters Radio conversations with award-winning CEOs of middle management companies who have made management innovation a way of life. You can also view David's bio, and you can share on social media so more people can find us. You can also sign up for our weekly alert of upcoming episodes so you'll always be up to date. Welcome back to Growth Igniters Radio with Pam Harper, that's me, and Scott Harper. Scott and I are talking today with David Burkus, author of The Myths of Creativity and his new book, Under New Management, about some of the myths of creativity, especially as they relate to management practices. David, how can people find out more about you and your books? So probably the best place is davidberkus.com. I know that's a pretty old school way to do it. It's not the most creative URL for a website or anything like that. But um, I was blessed with a very odd last name. So davidberkus.com, B-U-R-K-U-S is open. Every, like every username for any social network that's ever invented is open. It's a great thing. So, I, But even, even if you just want to check out more info, more resources, there's a ton of resources that can help you and your organization at davidberkus.com. That's great. And of course, we'll have resources on the episode page 69. Go to growthignitersradio.com. Scroll down. You'll even get a link over to David's podcast. So let's get back over to our conversation. We're starting to talk about management practices. You know, it's so common to hear about best practices, which we've seen and have talked about for a long time as sometimes being worst practices if they don't work for your organization. <laughs> Let's dig into some of these myths and misconceptions about some of the most prevalent best practices out there and what you've seen as creative alternatives. Let's start out with email. 
Yeah. So, you know, we have a love-hate relationship with email, right? We we love it. We can't live without it. But we also hate what it's doing to our work lives and to our home lives and all that sort of stuff. And we've mm-hmm. never – typical of a lot of technologies, we, we never really had a conversation once it was invented about how we should use it properly. Instead, we said, oh, this is awesome. Let's just use it, you know. And mm-hmm. the, the challenge is that email now in 2016 doesn't have the same geographic limitations that it used to when it was just on desktop computers or that it used to when it was, you know, just – there used to be the work phone number and that was your office phone number right. and that was it was considered only polite to sort of call that you don't call someone's cell phone unless it's an emergency but i mean by definition if you have a smartphone if you have your yeah. work email on your smartphone you bring your work home with you every single day now mm-hmm. and there's a lot of organizations that are finally sort of starting to have that conversation they're finding that even when when you're working even from the sort of 9 to 5 if your email software is checking email every five minutes, then it, it's distracting you. Or as I like to say now, a lot of times we don't check email anymore. Email checks us yeah. right? and, and it bothers us. And so if you're doing that every five minutes, you're really not capable of getting the focus you need to do the mm. deep work um, that really actually creates value for an organization. Mm. So many companies are saying you know, they're banning internal email. It's okay to email with clients and that sort of thing, but internally, pick up the phone, walk down the hall, or a lot of them are turning to sort of better, less interruptive, but equally beneficial digital systems. Um, you know, Slack is probably Slack, the biggest yeah. um, off-the-shelf system. What I see is a lot of companies are having to build something that's kind of a hybrid of Slack and message boards and a couple other things that's right for their organization. But the, the uniform thing is that they're trying to do away with that constant disruption that, that email creates. And the research supports this, that we've actually done studies where we limit people's email or we ban it entirely for a couple of days and we find reduced stress levels and increased productivity and sort of just an overall increase in well-being. Actually, Mm -hmm. one study showed that it reduced stress to the same level that teaching sort of mindfulness or or workplace meditation or deep breathing exercises to employees does, which it's fascinating. I I love to summarize it. It's, you know, banning email might not take you to your happy place, but it'll make you feel like you're there, right? It's because (laughs) the the level of reduction of stress is the same. Most people, I think, don't need to ban email entirely from their life. It's a really useful system, but they do need to send some limits. So what I tell a lot of people is turn off push notifications, right, which means you're your, your email's not checking you. It's just when you check it. And then right. physically drag the icon, the email icon to the rearmost screen on your phone. You know how most Android <laughs> or iPhones have multiple screens? Yeah. So yes. you take it. I mean, no, most of us, we put it front and center. But actually, when you get home, drag it the furthest away from your center screen as you can. And then when you get to work the next day, drag it back. But just do something to kind of declare yeah. that this time is off limits so that you can actually be at home with your family, your significant other, your friends, whatever it is. And, and the organization needs that of you, too. They, they might feel like they they need you to respond right away. But what they really need is for you to get enough rest to be effective when you get back to the issue anyway. That's very true. I think the thing that's important to emphasize here is that the leader, the CEO of the company has to model this because if somebody from the middle just says, I'm going to tune out of this, uh, it's not nearly as effective as when these things are are defined decisions that come from the top and we say, look, this is what we're going to do and you're not going to get penalized. Totally. I I do think you need some level of management support. It it works best when it is the the top level, the senior leadership of an organization saying this. I think it's possible if you're a manager, though, to still kind of create a pocket of excellence Mm -hmm. inside the organization organization and and use almost see your role as the human shield to block off this for yeah. your people so that they mm-hmm. can focus but right. you're absolutely right the it's applied best this is one of those rare things that it's applied best if it actually goes top down instead of organic to your point back when I worked as a director in corporate before I joined Pam I saw email actually as destroying communication and uh, I would be copied on people's emails and if I saw a string go 
more than three three uh, emails, I would step in. I'd say, nope, time for a conversation face to face. No more email. Yeah, I have an article on Harvard Business Review because so often we leave meetings and we think, oh, that whole thing could have just been an email. And I have have an article on the HBR.org site that says, no, you know, no, that that meeting could not have been an email because you're going to lose a lot of vital information. Well, that's right. And it's not actually quicker. Yeah. Well, so now let's talk about another one. There's uh, something that we've all experienced or many of us have, especially in corporate non-compete agreements. You know, you can work here, but uh, you have to agree you can't. Uh, go to a competitor for, you know, X number of months or years. You know, lots of companies think that this is a way to protect their talent and protect their intellectual property, but uh, research says otherwise. Uh, yeah, so so this and, and a couple other things in the book, like uh, performance evals, et cetera, there's, uh-huh. there's a lot of these practices that are noble in their goal. Like, I, I get the idea right. of a non-compete clause. It's noble in its intent, that why, why would we bother to invest all of this money into people and developing um, their talents, their knowledge, their skills, abilities, if they can just take that and go to a competitor? I, I get that. Un- unfortunately, the reason research doesn't really bear that out. I mean, at the individual level, we see that people who are asked to sign a non-compete clause, both in practice and in the lab, when they're given that sort of um, lack of mobility that a non-compete clause creates, they work less hard, they think of less innovative solutions, they're less engaged overall. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we see is that when when a person migrates from sort of firm A to firm B, both firms actually benefit from an exchange of knowledge because it's not like we cut that person off entirely. They maintain relationships to the past people they worked with. And right. what you actually create when you have that migration is um, a new network connection between two organizations that can benefit. We actually see this in insofar as you know the, the ultimate thing we're probably trying to prevent we see this in patent information too about right. what companies cite what patents and all that sort of stuff we we all sort of benefit and we even see it at the societal level states that um, refuse to enforce non-competes generally end up with a kind of a more innovative economy overall we actually see some states that used to not do it and then flipped to actually changing the law so that they could enforce non-compete agreements we saw talent migrate out of those states to, to states that protected their their right to mobility so at every level the individual the company and society while the goal is totally noble the practice and the research on how we've been doing with these non-compete clauses it leads us to another conclusion so what would be some alternatives here? Every organization now in an, in an information age, in a, in a creative, and we're past the age of knowledge work and we're in the age of, of creative work for every organization, we only benefit from building relationships with everyone inside the network, competitors, vendors, people we might not even think are relevant to our industry. And you see this from you know traditional consumer goods companies like Procter & Gamble to um, a lot of advertising and design firms are realizing they need to kind of have a, a much more... Um, porous dividing line on their who's in their organization and who's not so that they're reaching out and working with people um, outside of the organization a mm-hmm. lot more because the benefit of knowledge sharing it really outweighs any costs of possible intellectual property leaks, et cetera. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And and companies that we're seeing that are working in more strategic partnerships of various sorts understand this very promising what you're saying. So let's talk about one more organizational charts. This is something that is the bane for many companies. You know, they certainly don't work like they used to. And yet the standard hierarchical org chart still exists. So what does research tell you? Yeah. So, I mean, we all know it's really hard to get an org chart right. And and there's a good reason for that. I mean, an, an org chart was a great tool for what it was invented for, which was managing the railroad. 
right? So the, the mm-hmm. first org chart in, in history was developed in the mid-1800s, and it was developed to manage the railroad, which is the ultimate definition of a business model that sort of doesn't change, right? Once you right. lay yeah. a track, Absolutely. it's incredibly expensive to move it. But for most organizations that aren't, you know, hauling people or hauling freight along uh, railroad lines, the need for resiliency and adaptability is so much higher. And this is the problem with with org charts. There's this idea that as soon as the environment changes, we probably need to be changing the org chart. And, and reorganizations right. sort of demotivate everybody, right? So, so my right. recommendation is we write the org chart in pencil. You might still need reporting relationships and that sort of stuff, but you need to communicate a fluidity in all mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. The research supports that the, the best performing teams when it comes to creativity and innovation are actually temporary. They're not the, well, we had the same boss for five years, so we yeah. were the same team for five years type things. They're, they're teams that form by taking the best people for that specific problem, let them deal with that problem, and then disband mm-hmm. and go back into the network and reform teams. And that's that's a much more fluid org chart than, than normal, and that's really what we need to be able to respond to the ever-changing complexity that is the business environment today. Absolutely. I want to emphasize that the kinds of things we're talking about here can apply to any size organization. And these kinds of practices are not just in one department. They're throughout the entire company. Every function can take advantage of the kinds of things that you're talking about. And that's why I really love this book. So we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more with David Burkus, author of Under New Management and the Myths of Creativity, about immediately useful ideas for adopting these creative management practices for more powerful results in your own organization. Stay with us. You are listening to Growth Igniter's Radio with Pam Harper and Scott Harper, brought to you by Business Advancement Incorporated on the web at businessadvance.com. We want to thank those of you who've reviewed and rated our podcast series on iTunes so more people can find us. But some people have told us that they're not really sure how to do it. It's not completely intuitive. And that's why I've created a short video which removes the mystery from the process in just three easy steps. First, go to growthignitersradio.com. Second, look over to the sidebar on the right and you'll see a headline, subscribe to Growth Igniters Radio. Third, click on the blue button underneath that says how to review Growth Igniters Radio and iTunes. This will take you to an 84 second video showing everything you need to know about how to review and rate the podcast. And thanks again for helping us spread the good word about Growth Igniters Radio. Welcome back to Growth Igniters Radio with Pam Harper and Scott Harper. Over the last two segments, Scott and I have been talking with David Burkus, author of The Myths of Creativity and Under New Management, about myths surrounding bringing creativity and innovation to management practices. Dave, how can people find your books? So the best place is IndieBound, right? Support your oh, local independent okay, retailer. Okay. Um, or, I mean, my website's davidberkus.com. From there, there's links to, to wherever you'd want to go. There's links to, to uh, my podcast. We'll even link back to this one. So you, could end, you can do this endless cycle of being on this podcast website, then being on mine, then clicking back and just How keep going. How about that? You can go to episode 69 for uh, growthignitersradio.com, and you will then get those links. Let's go back to the conversation. This is the part of Growth Igniters Radio where we like to talk about the immediately useful ideas. So we've been talking about creative management practices. How can 
a company take something like this because they're very innovative and make it right for them. This is actually something that's not in either um, book, and I, and I wish it was, um, because it was sort of one of those realizations I had afterwards. It, the fun thing about writing a book is that other people read it, and then their ideas spring new stuff. And, and one of them pointed out that uh, there's 13 new ideas in, in Under New Management, but each one of them is actually less of an idea to implement and more of an idea of elimination. But what you as a leader, and again, any size organization really need to be thinking about are what are the practices we've adopted over time that are actually getting in the way and keeping mm -hmm. an open mind on doesn't matter the reason that you implemented them before. If they're limiting your people's ability to do their best work, then we should think about how we can eliminate them or how we can replace them with something better. And that's you know yes. everything we've talked about today stems from that, a realization from a leader that a certain thing, non-compete clauses, or a belief that only certain departments are created, all of those things were ideas that needed to be eliminated mm -hmm. so that people could do their best work. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that we also have found is that the more that somebody looks at the outcomes, you know, what is it they're trying to do, whether it's to attract more talent or to become more streamlined in terms of introducing products or services, sometimes the conversations that we've heard, people will say, you know, this, this particular practice is getting in our way. And it goes to what you're saying, Dave, about how certain things are limiting. Yeah. And so it's the recognition that you have to be looking, I think, at what is it that we're trying to do? Focus on the behaviors you want to happen and then... What has well, to happen to make that go? Would you agree right. with that? Oh, totally. As I say at the end of Under New Management, um, great leaders don't innovate products. They innovate the factory, right? And, and in yeah. the yes. industrial age, they were innovating the factory in order to physically force people to sort of be more efficient. But in a, in a knowledge work economy, it's more about reinventing the factory to give that empowerment back to people so they can do their best work. Mm -hmm. And you used to believe exactly. that they needed that structure, those policies, those practices. It's kind of flipped now. What they need is for leaders to figure out how they can engage their people's best best mind so that they can do their best work. Mm -hmm. So what's another practical uh, thing that somebody can do, someone they can talk to or an idea they can write down that yeah, can so make that happen? I, I, think, I think the next kind of most practical thing is that actual kind of conversation with your people, right? So a lot of times we as the leader, we tend to, we have policy creep, which is why I was talking about the elimination thing. But a lot of yeah. times those policies are from observing behaviors instead of having that conversation about yeah. what triggered them, whether or not it's a unique situation or whether or not it's, you know, it's a systemic thing. And a lot of times, I mean, to, today, 2016, a lot of company policies need to be a more sort of democratic or collaborative process. Then as a leader, sort of that's your job. Less of that kind of top-down instigation and more about that conversation about what do we want our workplace to look like? What are we trying to accomplish, as you said, and how do we get that? And I think it, for a lot of leaders, as you're trying to scale the organization, it can become really easy to stop having those conversations or to only have them with a Absolutely. few people in the organization instead of everyone. So another immediately useful idea, what we're hearing is schedule those conversations, make sure that they happen. Uh, and make sure they don't happen over email. Oh, yeah. this, is, this is true. And you have to create an environment in the company that makes it safe to have those conversations. Because Very true. some people don't, they may say, I don't like this, but they'll never say it because they don't feel safe. I mean, even as, yeah. as a leader, when we, if somebody does 
is brave enough to sort of speak up and give you negative or, or constructive feedback, being very public about your acceptance of that feedback yeah. and your willingness to to make public changes about it is hugely important. Because exactly what you said, if you if you crucify every messenger, then pretty soon you have no messengers left. That's right. That's absolutely true. Another thing, and maybe you've seen this too, is you get somebody who's very enthusiastic. Maybe somebody sees the light right now. They're listening to some of these ideas. One of the things I'm wondering about is, have you seen this kind of thing where you have to be sure that if you're going to adjust uh, one practice like email, that you don't have something else in another uh, policy that's going to actually cancel out the benefits of what you're trying to do? Yeah. So, I mean, politicians and corporate executives are great at this idea of that sort of unintended consequences. Yeah. We, we establish a policy and we don't think about what the resonant ideas of that will be. And that's that's one of the reasons for that conversation piece, because your people are going to notice what the implications of a policy are going to be better than you will, because, I mean, we're all selfish creatures. We're thinking about ourselves. And so if we are given the opportunity to speak to a policy, we're going to have a, an ability to see how it affects us better than the leader will. Yeah. And if it negatively affects us or if it positively affects us, we're going to speak up on that. So it's another reason for that conversation to happen is it's going to help you see what the unintended consequences of any decision are. That's true. And ultimately, it comes down to making the implicit, which is we in, we somehow think we're going to feel that something's working, to actually saying and having those conversations and saying, how we know if this is really working, well, and that's which a is really, a real basic kind of thing. Right. That's that's a really important point to, to add to that, deciding that ahead of time. Right. So so often right. we look yes. back at a policy and we go, yeah, it worked because of this. Well, unless you decided before you implemented it that that was how you were going to be measuring success. Yep. Then that's not a valid measurement. So you have to decide that ahead of time. We're going to do this. Here's the, the metric we're going to use. Or maybe it's not even a metric, but it's just a, a thing if this event happens or whatever mm -hmm. it is. But you have right. to decide it ahead of time. Otherwise, you're, you're uh, in, in um, logic, it's called affirming the consequent, I believe. Right. Uh -huh. but, uh -huh. and, and it's a logical fallacy that, that we commit all of the time. Yeah. Exactly. So these are a few of the ways that uh, we can start exploring what kinds of new management practices mm -hmm. uh, might work for today's reality. So any final thoughts as far as uh, under new management so I already sort of gave away my usual big final thought, which is that idea that great leaders don't innovate the product, they innovate the factory. And mm -hmm. uh, it, no matter what size your business is, as, as soon as you start to add scale to it, or if it's already scaled to be fairly large, your role as a leader or even a mid-level manager is to decide what changes need to be made to the factory. Factory is obviously a metaphor for any office or any or workplace. Um, what changes need to be made to that to allow your people to do their best work? Okay. Well, thank you so much for being our guest today. Well, thank you for having me. Again, David, thanks so much. To get show notes and resource links for this week's episode, go to growthignitersradio.com, episode 69. Until next time, this is Pam Harper. And Scott Harper. Wishing you continued success and leaving you with these questions to discuss with your team. What myths can we bust about our own management practices? And how can we increase our management creativity to achieve game-changing results starting today?
Growth Igniters and Growth Igniters Radio are service marks of Business Advancement Incorporated. All Growth Igniters Radio episodes are copyrighted productions of Business Advancement Incorporated, intended for the private use of our audience. Except as otherwise provided by copyright law, all other uses, including copying, editing, redistribution, and publication without prior written consent of Business Advancement Incorporated, are prohibited. All rights reserved.